uh, purchased by Atlantic Richfield. And it was a rather interesting time. And what they would do is um, they would come in, and as was a normal uh, course of events um, through their acquisition process, they would come in and they would take the management, key management people, and they would put you through a battery of tests to see um, what they got as well as the inventory and the fixed assets, you know, what kind of people they bought uh, with their dollars. And so they would sit down and they would put us through these tests. And uh, this was, like I said, 1982. I had become a Christian in 1978 and um, was actually a little more excited and not quite as controlled as I am today. And um, so I, I was kind of like, I kind of went overboard in that particular area, man. I mean, I just couldn't get enough of, of what, I was, what I was learning. And so in this particular course of events, they would, add, they would give you aptitude tests that have to do with business, but they'd also test you personally to see uh, what made you tick from a personal standpoint. You know, what you like to do, what hobbies you had, what interests you had, what books you've read. And so it's kind of like, you know, what hobbies do you have? Uh, well, I love to go to Bible study. Uh, what books do you read? Oh, I love to read. I got 66 that I'm working on right now, that kind of thing, you know. Well, 66, yeah, well, they're all in one book, though. It's a Bible. I love to read the Bible. And I, and I love to go, go to Bible studies. And, oh, what, which, what are the latest books that you read? And they were, I'm sure they had to do with um, some Christian biographies or something that had to do with just what, you know, the Bible taught. And so, you know, I went through this whole series of things. And the guy had uh, the, the uh, position of sitting down and analyzing my test. And so we sat down one-on-one, -on -one and he looked at me, and he said, do you realize that um, you're really narrow-minded? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, everything, I mean, all your interests revolve around, like, Bible studies and reading the Bible and Christian this and that. And he said, you know, don't you, don't you think that's a little dangerous because that's a real, really narrow perspective of life? Now, I don't know how many of you are blessed when somebody says, you know, you're a really narrow-minded person. <laughs> It, it, you know, that's, uh, my impression was probably like yours would be if somebody said, you know, you're really narrow-minded. You need to have a broader perspective of life. And uh, I, was, I wasn't as, uh, as sharp as I am now. <laughs> that's a scary thought. <laughs> and, and I, you know, it was hard to really respond to him. And as we were going through this conversation, I began to realize that, you know, but there are some things in life that don't allow for open-mindedness or a broad perspective. And so I went down and I began to give him a couple of illustrations. I thought I'd share them with you. And it's like, if we're accused of being narrow-minded and we take a, offense at that or become defensive about it, we need to think this whole thing through. Because there are some things in life that do not allow for a very broad perspective. Example number one. You're driving down the freeway. You're going 100 miles an hour. Policeman pulls you over, you're in a 55 mile an hour zone, he pulls you over and says, do you realize, sir, you've gone 45 miles an hour over the speed limit? I'm going to have to write you a ticket. Now, there's one answer that I'll bet you won't work. And that is, you know, officer, don't you think you're being a little narrow-minded? You can try it, but it ain't going to work, right? It just doesn't work in that arena. Okay, that's one. Okay, let's take another one. Let's say you're working for someone, and they have the gall to believe because they're your boss, that they have some right to examine your performance. Whether you're meeting your quotas, if you're a salesperson, whether you're coming in on time, if you're an employee, whether you're leaving too early, whether you're taking six weeks of vacation when you're only entitled to one, whether you're not coming in as often as you should. I mean, and they would have the nerve to sit down with you and say, you know, Bill, I've been examining your performance lately and you're just not meeting our expectations. 
Now, Bill, I know you have the option here, but I'm sure one of the answers that won't go over real big is, you know, sir, I really think you're being narrow-minded. You need to have a broader perspective. You need to be open-minded. I mean, there's some value. Let me explain to you the value of why I need to be off six weeks. The value of why I need to leave early. The value of why I need to come in late. And if I leave early, I should come in late. After all, those things wash out. So, you know, there's a little, there's a, there's a broader perspective. There's an overview that you're missing, sir, ma'am. Right? That probably doesn't work. Now, if you've ever played any kind of athletics and you sit down with your coach and he'd say, hey, you know what, your assignment or your read on this particular play is to do such and such. If you're a softball coach and the ball's hit to you and there's a guy on first or a gal on first in this particular case, there's a gal on first and uh, the ball's hit to the shortstop, you're going to go to second because you're going to get the lead runner, right? I mean, that's the way the game is played. So you have a player who decides to do anything he or she wants to do whenever she wants to do it. She decides to turn and throw to left field. He said, what are you doing? Well, you know, everybody would go to second. That's the natural thing to do. I thought if I threw it to left field, I'd fake them out and they'd try to go to third when they saw the ball in the outfield. And then I'm hoping that the left fielder is smart enough to throw it into third base and then throw it back to second base, and I'll bet you we'll get a double play. Well, you know, that's not the kind of player that you want to have on your team because no one else knows what they're going to do at any given time. And so she sits down and says, you know, coach, you're really being narrow-minded. Oh, yeah, I guess that's probably true. And if you have any children, who have children? Anybody have any children? Oh, well, if you have children, let me see your hands. You have children? Oh, then all you people are narrow-minded. That's just the way that works. If you're a parent, you are narrow-minded. Because when you get to things like curfew and are you eating right, are you doing your homework, are you doing this, are you doing that? Well, hey, Mom, Dad, you know, I'm pretty narrow-minded. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. You go to university and the professor thinks you should turn in papers if you want to pass the course, thinks you should show up and take a test whenever they offer them. You know, it's a really sad thing that, that they would be so narrow-minded because life to me would be a lot easier if we were all a little more open-minded. So I began to reason with this individual and it began to dawn on him that, you know what, I guess there are some things in life that call for a very narrow perspective. There's not room for interpretation. So as I was going through it, it, it start, I started to realize that, you know what, just as, uh, these are just a small example of narrow-mindedness, but that perspective pays tremendous dividends. In a broad-minded, open perspective, in areas that are narrow in perspective, lead to many mistakes, and in fact, some of them are fatal. And the same is true in our relationship with God. There are many people who would have you to believe that you are too narrow-minded with your viewpoint on who God is and on what His program is. And so after all, shouldn't God be open-minded? And shouldn't there be a lot of ways that we can please God? And shouldn't there be a lot of ways that we can get to heaven? And is there, what's this narrow perspective that you're trying to, uh, to teach us about? Because you know what? You're really closed-minded. I mean, why can't Buddhists, Buddhists be right? And why can't Islam be right? And why can't uh, Mormonism be right? And why can't this be right and that be right? And, you know, uh, all the different things that we hear in the world in which we live. Why can't everybody be right? What makes you think you're right and we're wrong? Aren't you being a little narrow-minded? And that's the argument that they begin to reason with us as if somehow that has some validity when we can see in the world around us that it's not true. That's like saying, I'm in an airplane, I'm going to jump out without a parachute. And the pilot finds out about it, he says, look, I wouldn't do that, you're going to kill yourself. Oh, you know, I think you're being a little narrow-minded here. And just because it hasn't been done before, it doesn't mean it can't be done now. 
See, there's past precedence that helps us to see that certain things in life are true, dogmatically so, and that there isn't any room for interpretation. There are two philosophies in life, and you tell me how you would react to these or respond to them because you have been confronted by them. And let me just explain to you what they are. Number one, this open-minded, broad philosophy that we're being asked to embrace. By the way, I think it's fascinating. I just got finished reading a couple more books that have to do with uh, biblical prophecy. Again, a very narrow perspective on my part. But um, I, I just got finished reading those uh, two books, Oil, uh, Armageddon Oil in the Middle East Crisis and the Rise and Fall of Babylon. I read those two books. And one of the fascinating things that is a, that is a thread of com common ground between both of them is that we are moving in our world to, to a world type of religion that never before would have been embraced by the world. And we saw it in the war. We saw it with Muslims. We saw it with Christians. We saw it with Jews, all praying to God, and an overall umbrella of who God may be. And everyone, as long as we don't fine-tune what we believe or say we believe, then it's okay, and everybody can follow under this big umbrella of some sort of belief, and that's okay. See, there's no right or wrong. There's nothing that's right. There's nothing that's wrong. And every road, so to speak, somehow or another is going to lead to heaven as long as we just have some sincere belief in something. And we see a world that's moving more and more towards that, and the book of Revelation indicates that that'll be true of the latter days. We are now embracing a time where there is no right, there is no wrong, there is no definite, narrow perspective. It is now a wide-open umbrella for everybody, and there's room for all of us to fall underneath it. we got a problem with that. Because that first philosophy has to do with a philosophy that's called universalism. And this is the way this works. And you've probably run into people like this who have said, universalism simply is this, that since God is good and God is a loving God and God created everyone, that ultimately everyone who's ever been created will return to God. All of us will get to heaven if that's the definition of what's being, quote, saved is. That all of us, since God is good, since God is loving, every person that God has created will ultimately return to heaven. Universalism. The problem with that is, number one, if that is true, then why did Jesus Christ ever die? If all of us are going back to heaven, or going to heaven, because God is good and loving, and he certainly couldn't send anyone to hell or condemn or, or, or judge anyone, then why did Jesus have to die? The greatest error that's ever been made in human history has been the death of Jesus Christ. Because if he died for sin and that was not necessary, then why did he need to die? And so there are some, and, uh, and most people that believe that, do not believe in the deity of Christ, meaning that, God, that, that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh and that died for the sins of the world. Most people that believe that will not believe, do not believe in the deity of Christ. So now they come up with a little different twist, and that twist is that, okay, well, wait a minute, we believe in the, uh, we're, we're Trinitarian, we believe in the Trinity, we believe in the deity of Christ, we believe that Jesus Christ died for sin, but we also believe because he died for sin that, guess what, all people will be saved because of his death. You follow how the log logic goes? Okay, he did die for sin, and because he died for sin, all people will be saved because that's what he died for. You see any problems with that? How about this? Matthew 28, Jesus said, Go into all the nations, and as you go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He's saying, All authority has been given to me, and my commandment to you is to go and tell everybody about what I've done and who I am. So if that's not necessary, then why did he tell us to do something that doesn't make any sense? Are you following this? 
This is very important as it relates to a narrow perspective. So he says, go in, teach, and tell everyone about Jesus Christ. Well, why? If Jesus died for the sins of the world and everyone will be saved, we don't need to tell anybody, right? Wrong. We're commanded to do it. There must be a reason for the command. The second problem that we have is that what about Jesus and his authority in teaching about hell? You know, in Luke 16, when you have some time, jot it down and read it. But in Luke chapter 16, Jesus taught very clearly the existence of a place that was called hell. Hades, there was a great chasm that was fixed between those who are saved, according to the Bible definition, and those who are not saved, according to the biblical definition. And there was a great chasm that was fixed in between them. There was a conscious awareness of what it would be like to be in the presence of God, and there was a constant awareness of what it would be like to be tormented for all of eternity. Jesus clearly taught the existence of such a place. He also clearly taught that we should flee the coming wrath. He clearly taught that there was a narrow way and that there was a very broad way and many were finding themselves on the path to destruction. There were more people that are on the path to destruction than there are into the narrow way of eternal life. And so what do we do with all of Jesus' teachings on something that uh, obviously don't make any sense if everyone's going to be saved? So there's a problem that we need to deal with and there's a narrow perspective. The second philosophy that's kind of... That, that's under that umbrella of open-mindedness has to do with what would be called kind of a wider hope theory. And there are many of us who have struggled with that. And that is, how can a good, loving, just God condemn somebody to a place called hell if they've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? How many of you have ever wrestled with that? What about people who haven't heard about Jesus? What does God do with them? That's a valid question. It's one that needs to be addressed. What does God do with people who have never heard about Jesus Christ? And so the argument would go like this. Well, God is a God of justice. He's a God of mercy. And in Genesis 18.25, for people that you run across that ask you about somebody who hasn't, that they've never heard the gospel, what does God do with them? That problem came up. And God said this to Abraham. He said, will not the God of justice and righteousness do what is right in that situation? Won't God do what's right? I mean, that we, we, can, we can depend upon that. But here's a problem with that. Think about this for a moment. If people who have never heard the gospel will be automatically, quote, saved or allowed to go to heaven to spend eternity with God because they had never heard the gospel and never had an opportunity to reject the claims of Christ, listen to me, follow this. If that's true, you know what I'm thinking? I'm not going to tell anybody that I know. Wait, think about that. Isn't that true? If all those who have never heard the gospel are automatically going to heaven because they've never had a chance to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then wouldn't we be better off not telling anybody about Jesus and forcing them into an uncomfortable position of choosing whether to accept His Lordship or not? Let's not tell anybody. And let's just thank God that we chose to accept the message when it was shared with us because whoever shared it with us really didn't love us as much as we thought they did because they may have been hoping that we would have said, no way. <laughs> you see how it works? You see the, the, the mess that we get into with this open-minded philosophy? And so the problem is that, well, guess what? Maybe we'd be better off not telling anybody about anything. But I'm still struggling with some commands that Jesus said go into all the world. Tell everybody that you can. 
Acts 1, 8 says that when you receive power of the Holy Spirit, that you're to be my witnesses. You're to go into Judea, Samaria, into the outermost parts of the world, telling everybody about the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ. So I don't understand what God's doing. On one hand, he's saying, go ahead and preach the gospel and let everybody you know about Jesus. And on the other hand, well, if they don't hear, then they're going to be saved anyway. So that doesn't make any sense to me. So we're really forced with dealing with some tough issues here. And in fact, you know, if you're in 1 Peter 3.15, it says, Sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart. Set Him aside. Always being ready to give a hope and a defense for the hope that is within you. Always being ready when somebody asks you, Hey, what's going on? Why do you have such a peace in your life? Why do you have such a hope in your life? Why aren't you worried about the war? And why aren't you worried about economic situations? And why aren't you worried about this and that? And, and he says, Hey, you know what? Because you've got a hope that this world doesn't have to offer. You know the future. You've got a direction. You've got a purpose. And we need to, when those opportunities arise, share that hope with them. It says, sanctify Jesus in your heart. Set him aside. Because he's the reason for the hope that's within all of us who have come to know him. So we've got all kind of problems. And it really is all leading to this one question. The one question of narrow-mindedness. Is there only one way that mankind can ever be right with God again? Is there only one way to heaven? That's the question. Is there only one way, or are there many roads, all of which lead to heaven? Those are the two choices that we have in the world in which we live. Is there only one way, or are there many ways? And if there is only one way, is that way fair? Because that seems to be our next question. Well, that doesn't seem fair to me. Okay, well, what's fair? So we'll take a look at it. You got your Bibles? Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3. The only help that we're going to get in this particular topic is to look and see what the Bible clearly teaches. And the reason I want to show you what it clearly teaches is because that which it clearly does not teach is not something that you want to base uh, your philosophy upon. It's not something you want to base your standards upon because where it is silent, we too must be silent. We can speculate all you want, but the fact remains that what he does say clearly overshadows that which he does not say. And so as you look at John chapter 3, we're going to take a look at a man who is really asking in his heart this question. Is there only one way to be right with God? Is there only one way to get... How do we get to heaven? That's the question. A very, very practical question. How can I be sure that when I die, that I'm going straight to heaven and not stopping at Gil? Or wherever you think you're going to stop. John chapter 3, verse 1. See, there was a man of the Pharisees whose name was Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, you know, Jesus got a problem too. I mean, he's got the same problem that many of us do, and the reason I've got a narrow perspective is it seems like Jesus is a pretty narrow-minded kind of guy himself. He says, I say to you, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't get to heaven. Period. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he be born again? Yet Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Again, he's a little narrow-minded here. He's not giving him a whole lot of room. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said, are you, are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do, do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the, world, the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. A very narrow perspective. Let's take a look at just a couple of things, and we'll kind of put it all together. Number one, he says that we must be, quote in verse 3, it says that he, we must be born again. Or you cannot see the kingdom of God. It's impossible to ever get to heaven unless you're born again. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes to us that we are as people three-dimensional. He says we have a body, we have a soul, and we have a spirit. We have a physical body which we can see as we look around us. We have a soul, which is the personality, the intellect, the emotion, um, our discretion as far as choosing one thing over another. But he also says that we are spiritual beings and that we have a third dimension. And that dimension has to do with our spirit. In Genesis, we, re we realize, according to what God said to Adam and Eve, he said, if you eat of the tree of knowledge, if you eat of the tree that I said not to eat from, that sin will enter into the world and you shall surely die. Satan went to them and said, you're not going to die just because you eat a piece of fruit. That doesn't make any sense. And so he deceived them and they ate of the fruit. At that moment, according to 1 Corinthians 15, sin entered into the world through their act of disobedience. The Bible says just as sin entered the world through Adam, so life enters the world through the God-man or the person of Jesus Christ. At that moment in time, mankind died spiritually because of their choice to rebel against God. Okay, listen to this. You and I are born spiritually dead. You follow what he's saying? We have a body. We can look around and physically we're alive. But the problem that we have is, and physically, I question sometimes whether you are or not. <laughs> but, but one thing that I do know is, I mean, you can give us a little faint pulse and a, and a little grin every now and then so we know you're still ticking, you're still with us physically. The one hard part is to try to decide whether someone is still dead spiritually because we can't see that dimension of that person's life. We can see evidence of life or death, but we don't know whether they're dead or not. So we are born spiritually dead. So what Jesus says is this, unless you are born again, spiritually come alive, you will never get to heaven. And he illustrates it with physical birth. Now, you talk about a narrow perspective. Check this one out for a minute. You want to have a child. How are you going to do it? Well, let's see. You can take snakes and snails and puppy dog tails and you can mix them all together and you can have a son. Or you can take sugar and spice and everything nice and mix it all together and have a little daughter. Right? Ain't that the way you had your kids? How'd you have your kids? Now, there's a lot of creative ways to have children today. I understand that, you know. There's uh, in vitro fertilization. There's artificial uh, stimulation. <laughs> no, artificial... Uh, 
whatever helps. But artificial insemination, there's all kind of things like that. There's all kind of ways to help. But there's one thing that I notice about every formula that's out there. Somewhere along the line, there's got to be a male sperm and there's got to be a female egg. And the two have got to get together and dance at some point. All right? Now, you can say to yourself, that's a very narrow perspective. Fine, that's as narrow as it gets. You show me how you can come up with a kid any other way, and then maybe I'll start to listen to what you say. We don't have any doubts or question or problem with a very narrow perspective on how physical life occurs. Everyone is in agreement of that, right? Narrow perspective. Narrow perspective. So Jesus used that as an illustration. He said, hey, you know what? Just as people have to be born a certain way physically, they must be born the same way spiritually, or they will never get to heaven. Very narrow perspective. Spiritually, oh, we argue it. Oh, that can't, there got to be other ways. Physically, we say, well, I understand that. Oh, yeah, it makes sense to me. Well, why doesn't it make any sense spiritually? Because we don't want it to make any sense spiritually. How many of you have gone to a funeral? Been to a funeral lately? Boy, you ever see how good people look dead? When I first became a Christian, again, narrow perspective. I thought the greatest thing to do, we're, we're actually leading a youth group. Think about that. You ought to be glad I'm in here instead of with your kids. <laughs> So what we did was, we thought, you know, it would be the greatest thing to do. We were teaching a thing on death, you know. Hey, let's, let's take a look at what the Bible has to say about death. So we went down to Brown's Mortuary in Santa Ana. This was great. <laughs> we went in there. It was pouring down rain at night. It was cold. It was raining. It was, it was scary. And we took these kids into the mortuary. And in the back, they showed us the table where they lay them, you know. They kind of slant them and slit them and let them drain. They showed us that. <laughs> What? That's what they do. Oh, I can't believe that. That's a very narrow perspective. Well, that's what they do. And then we took them in the next room, and check this out. There was, a, there was a lady in there who was doing someone's hair. Although, I'm sure there are a lot of beauticians who wish that their customers were as cooperative as that particular one. <coughs> but if you think about it for a moment, she was doing someone's hair. And then they do that, you know, they paint the nails and they get it, you know, go out and buy them a new dress or a new suit. I mean, how many of you said that? You, you, tell me you haven't. You've been in there, you look at them, they're in the box, you say, man, they look good. And they do look good. It's the first time some of the slobs ever dressed up, you know. And, and they're all cleaned up, they look real nice, right? Now you got a problem here. What do you think that person needs more than anything else? Oh, I know what it is. Um, hey, just won the lottery. Good news for you, you just won the lottery. Yeah, I know you need that. You need the money. There's no doubt about it. Hey, got a neat church I can take you to. Really good. Pastor's great, man. Preaches right out of the Bible. I'll take you right over there. Man, you need to hear this. This is good stuff. Right? No response. Um, man, you know what? You better stop drinking because that's going to kill you. <clears throat> you need to stop drinking. You need to stop smoking. You need to start running around. You need to stop doing all these things. You know what? You need to be baptized. But then if you do that, all the makeup and stuff will run off of them. What does that dead person need more than anything else? Huh? Life. That's all they need. They're not excited about winning the lottery at that point. They don't need to go on a diet. They don't need to take up exercise. They don't need any of this stuff. They didn't just stop doing anything. That's already been taken care of. What do they need? They need life. Dead people need life more than anything else that you have to offer them. That's what a dead person needs. 
Oh, that's pretty narrow. Oof. Think about it. What are you going to give a dead person? Only one thing they want, and that's to live. That's what Jesus said. He said, you know what? There's one thing you need more than anything else if you're dead spiritually. You need to become alive spiritually. Because that's what a dead person needs more than anything else that he or she could ever want in life. Pretty narrow? You better believe it. But it's good to be narrow. I got a couple that I want to have come up in about two minutes because I want to share with you one more thought and then I want to turn it over to them. And we're going to pick it up next week too. But I want to show you something. Look at, um, look at verse 17. See, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son in verse 16, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. How many kinds of people are there in the world according to what Jesus is saying here? How many kinds of people? Two, right? There are those who are spiritually alive who will have eternal life and spend eternity with God. There are those who are spiritually dead who are going to perish. There's only two kind of people in the world. The most wonderful thing about it is it crosses every kind of uh, uh, ground that you can think of as far as trying to differentiate between people. It crosses all economic boundaries. It crosses all racial boundaries. It crosses all religious barriers. It crosses it all. There's only two kind of people in the world. Those who are alive spiritually and those who are going to perish because they've never been become alive spiritually. They've never been, as the Bible says, born again spiritually. They are dead. They're walking. They could run. They could exercise. They may look good on the outside, but they're dead. And so here's what he says. There's only one way you get from being a dead person spiritually to becoming a live person spiritually. It says, He who believes in Him. For God did not send the Son into the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. It's a word meaning agency. Let me give you an illustration. <coughs> this last week, I'm in a contracting business. <clears throat> I had a customer who wanted a specific product. It was an electronic air cleaner that they wanted to put in a conference room to filter smoke so it didn't go all through their office. Good idea. <clears throat> Glad to sell them one. But there was only one company that makes it. Honeywell makes this particular product. So I called Honeywell and I said, I need to buy this particular product. Where can I buy it? And I said, you can only buy it through an authorized distributor. I said, you know, that's a pretty narrow-minded perspective. And they gave me a list of authorized distributors. So I called people that weren't authorized distributors, knowing that I could probably get a better deal. The only problem was, guess what? They didn't have them. Can you believe that? Why didn't they have them? Because they weren't an authorized distributor. They couldn't sell it. Even though they would have loved to sell it to me, they couldn't sell it. They weren't authorized to sell it. I couldn't buy it through them, so I had to go back to the list that they gave me, and I bought one through an authorized distributor. Because the one who was not authorized could not offer me what I needed the most. The one who was authorized could give me that which I needed most. That's the word that's used where we will have eternal life through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is authorized by God the Father to give you and I eternal life if we put our faith and trust in Him. For whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. 
Jesus is the authorized distributor, for lack of a better illustration, of eternal life, of a life that is right with God, of a life that will spend eternity in the presence of God, of a life that has found forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He is the only way, and that's why he had the audacity to say, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and that no man comes unto the Father but through me. He is it. There's no other way. Next week we'll talk about, well, wait a minute, if he's the only way, what about people who have never heard, or what about people who are living up to the revelation of the light that they've been giving, how is God going to deal with them? Because that still sounds a little narrow to me, but it would also mean this, if Jesus is the only way that we'll ever get to see God and spend eternity with him, then there's a sense of urgency that takes place in our life that says, I need to tell every person that I can about Jesus Christ because there is no other way they're going to get eternal life. They can't buy that air cleaner from anybody else. They can't get to heaven through any other means or any other way. They have to know Jesus and it's only in his name that they're going to get there. I don't have a choice anymore, but I got to let people know. And now I have a sense of urgency because I understand for the first time there is no other the road to get there. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. Spiritual life for dead people. That dead person that you know, though they look alive physically, needs to know Jesus because he has the ability, the authorization. It's a matter of authority. The policeman, it's a matter of authority. Your boss, it's a matter of authority. Your parents, it's a matter of authority. You see what's going on here? It's a question of authority. Do you believe in the authority of the one who is over you or don't you? That's the issue. Do you believe in the authority of Scripture that says there is no other way to heaven but through Jesus Christ? we got a couple here that understands that and they have a sense of urgency and that's why they're doing what they're doing. Otherwise, there's no reason to do it. If there's any other way that people who have never heard the gospel can get to heaven, there's no sense in sending missionaries out in the field to share the gospel with people who we can just confuse and force them into a position of choosing the wrong choice. And that's not the truth. The Bible says they must hear and believe upon his name because there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved than that of Jesus Christ. John and Barbara, come on.